talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Came across a great contest today. Well, great, interesting, fun. Fun contest today. The museum in Kitchener has been hosting a an exhibition called Unzipped. You may have heard something about this. Lots of advertising for it, lots of promotion for it, lots of talk about it. It is a history of the Rolling Stones. It has all kinds of artifacts and all kinds of costumes and all kinds of guitars and all kinds of all kinds of all kinds of stuff related related to the Rolling Stones. And this contest, uh, which, you know, they've been doing a lot of stuff to try and get people to come and visit, which apparently they have been, uh, this contest was, was pretty cool, actually. You could, they have a, a replica set up of the apartment that Mick Jagger and Keith Richards shared once upon a time. And so for this competition, for this contest, you could enter and you could win a night staying in this apartment. <laughs> it's a it's a very small apartment it's within the museum but you could win this and they've decorated it looks it was it was you would win it to live in it exactly as mick and keith lived in it there were dirty clothes everywhere there was old fish and chips lying around empty beer bottles dishes in the in the sink that hadn't been done and of course a um a truly truly disgusting brown carpet that uh, apparently if you are a Rolling Stones fan this is something that is uh, that is kind of famous the the disgusting brown carpet I, I I I like the music didn't know so much about the brown carpet however the the museum is calling it the <laughs> this is perfect the sticky fingers experience <laughs> which really is kind of disgusting fits funny but uh ugh, I I I can tell you that um, a number of years ago, uh, not to get really, really gross, but we didn't stay in Mick and Keith's apartment, but we stayed in a an inexpensive hotel in Florida. It wasn't the sticky fingers experience. It was the, you walked on the deep shag carpet in the room and liquid would squeeze between your toes. It was it was truly beyond any level of repulsive. We, we quickly vacated and found somewhere else because that was not going to work. Anyway. Uh, this, um, this, uh, this turns out that I had forgotten what today was. Yep. I had forgotten what today was. Everyone knows. Yeah. April 1st. It was April fool's joke. Yes. It was, um, it was only for fun. No, no real. I would have loved that. That would have been, I'm sure they would have got a ton of people who were interested in that one. However, it is, uh, you know, it was, as I say, it was April Fool's and it made me think back to, did you have someone, anyone do any April Fool's on you today? Did you, did you fall victim to an April Fool's joke by anyone today? See, I think back to years ago when I was a kid, April Fool's seems to have, I don't want to say it's fallen out of favor. It's not. It's, there are certain people, there are people who certainly still do a lot of April Fool's. I, I remember back when I was a kid, and I don't know if any of this is true or where the etiquette of April Fool's Day comes from, but, um, once upon my dad used to have an April Fool's joke for me every morning and it was always like you know silly stuff uh he had gone to you know a gag shop and my drink would have a a an ice cube in it that would have a fly frozen into it or something like that you know those kind of things uh but I always heard from my dad and I don't know again if this is true etiquette or if this is just something that he came up with that said if you're allowed to do April Fool's up until noon but if you do April Fools after 12 o'clock, you're the fool. Anyone ever heard that before? 
Will Erskine is in the studio. He was, uh, I wanted to bring him on here. Will, have you ever heard that before? Is April Fool's only good until noon? Do you know that? If it's only, sorry, I didn't uh, hear you there for a second, Scott. What'd you say? Well, so I was always told as a kid, my dad had always said that April Fool's, the etiquette of April Fool's was you were only supposed to do April Fool's jokes up till noon. And if you did it after noon, you were the fool. That was how this was supposed to work. You ever heard that before? Yes, I have. And I learned it much too late on in my life. And then I wondered how much like bad luck I'd racked up or something along those lines because of it. But yeah, it's supposed to be cut off at noon, apparently. Which... I See, I, I always just thought that my dad was just making it up mostly because I figured... He got me nice and early in the day, then I had to go to school, and I thought he had just made up a rule so I wouldn't get him when I came home from school or he came home from work. Hey, cut off, sorry, too late, can't do it. But uh, apparently it is, um, apparently it's something. So, hey, what's the, has anyone ever done a really good April Fool's joke on you, though? Uh, not, 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 not necessarily. And I've been let down by that. I've wanted someone to really, really get me. And maybe I'm literally asking for it now, but so far it's never been anything other than just, oh, you ate the wrong food or something like that. Like I, I want something, I want something that damages me slightly that we can laugh about, but only after about five years, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Something that, uh, that becomes a really good story when you have fully recovered. Exactly. Right? That, that, that's yeah. the thing. When, but there, but you know, because you're right. I, the, the things that have ever happened to me now, you know, I remember it's afternoon. So anyone who's at home right now thinking, oh, I know what I can do. I can call in and blah, blah, blah whatever. Uh, no, no, it's afternoon. So you know what? You just, you heard the rule. Afternoon, April Fool's becomes defunct. It is no longer, it no longer qualifies as April Fool's. But yes, I, I'm kind of with you. Well, I, one time, I think it would be kind of fun in a sadistic, masochistic kind of way to, to be got. And I, I, at the same time, I'm also cautiously saying that because I'm not, I say that now, I'm not, I'm not sure I would have the same <laughs> My response. My fortune is planning something now for you. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I'd have the same response once I got got. I mean, you know, as you say, until years later and then it's all, um, you know, it's all, it's all good. I think the, the, see, this was not an April Fool's thing. I think the best gag that I, that I ever played on someone, and this is kind of stupid and it's really not clever at all. And it's also kind of gross, but boy, it was effective. Um, at summer camp one year, when I was working as a counselor at a summer camp, there was only one toilet working in the boys lodge, whatever you call it. Oh no. So we inflated a balloon and put it into the toilet. <laughs> So anyone who wanted to go had to try and work around the balloon. The problem was as soon as your stream hit the balloon, it sprayed in every direction, including back onto you, which we thought was all hilarious until, again, we thought through the process and thought, well, wait a second, at some point I'm going to have to go. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You know, these it's all fun and games till someone wets themselves also uh, someone has to motto. someone had to handle that balloon to get rid of it eventually right it wasn't me i don't know i don't <laughs> know who did probably gus the maintenance guy or something had to you know there was always one guy and by the way i used the wrong term up at camp it wasn't in the bathroom it was in the kaibo was the uh again another word i don't know where it came from anyway we are going to dive into... No, we're not... Oh, I did it again. I, Will, what is happening that suddenly I am saying dive in all the time? I, I never use this phrase, and in the last three days, I've dove into yeah, everything. Yeah, maybe it's some long-form April Fool's prank. Someone's subliminally messaging you around your house or something. My head. It's just my head. It's locked into my head. I must have heard it somewhere. Okay, we're not going to dive in. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. John McGrain is a soccer legend from around here who's probably never sang the song Waka Waka or Haya Haya or La 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 or any of those, but he has kicked the ball around. He's in multiple halls of fame. He's played in the Olympics for Canada. Joins us now. John, how are you? I'm actually excited. Good. Well, you know what? Today, once they got through all the stuff, the draw was pretty exciting. And I'll say that I think if you're a fan of Canada's team finally getting back to the World Cup, it looked, I think, and I'm not the expert you are, but it looks like Canada dodged some bullets and got a reasonably decent placing here. Well, I tell you what, uh, it could have been a heck of a lot worse. Uh, and I think that the group that they're in right now, uh, well, let's face it, I mean, every single group has a world-class team in there, and those are usually teams that can guarantee their place into the next round. What it comes down to is who's the second-best team in the group? Right, right. And do you have an opportunity to get a point out of them, uh, knock them off, uh, and then you're looking at the, the other team in the group kind of score some goals and get result out of them. And I think in that particular case, Canada came out quite well. Well, so for those who didn't see it, it was in the last couple hours or so, uh, the team that John just described as the world-class team, it is a tough one. Belgium, which until I think it was yesterday, John, was ranked as the number one team in the world. They're now number two, but they're a, a powerhouse. But Canada also gets Croatia, who is getting older, and you don't know if that heat in Qatar, which is going to be... A, you know, pretty brutal if that's going to slow down an older team. And then Morocco, it sounds again like we, we haven't seen Canada play a lot of teams, hardly any teams outside of CONCACAF, but it, it sounds like there's a chance here. Oh, don't forget. I mean, it took three out of four points from the USA, three out of four points from Mexico, who are in the top 15 in the world. Uh, I think if you compare that against teams like Morocco uh, and even Croatia, uh, I mean, if you could do that against the USA and Mexico, uh, there is no reason in the world that you can't do it against Morocco. And uh, in fairness to uh, Croatia, they're still a quality team. Uh, but when you're playing three games in a very short time, uh, playing in that kind of condition uh, leans towards having a younger squad uh, with nothing to lose is a dangerous, is a dangerous animal. Nothing to lose, John. That's a great phrase because I do think that is something Canada has going forward here because I, you know, look, we've been watching them. People around here know what they've been doing. I, I don't know that if you're in the rest of the world, you've been closely monitoring what Canada has been doing. And I got to believe that a bunch of these countries are looking at this team as a soft touch as the, you know, in soccer terms, the minnow and an easy win. I, I'm not, they're, they're not going to be, I don't believe. And, and I, I think they can sneak up on some teams with that nothing to lose, as you described. Well, the one thing that really impressed me about the last three games that they played, and uh, I was fortunate to be at the uh, at the Jamaica game, which was just an absolutely fantastic experience to be a Canadian. Uh, I remember way back when, in the Stone Age, when I was playing, <laughs> uh, we would have 30,000 people in the stadium playing against Mexico in Toronto. 25,000 would be Mexicans. Uh, so... To have that type of support behind you is absolutely fantastic. Uh, I do believe that some teams will take them very, very uh, softly. But again, what impressed me was the fact the last three games they played without their very best player. And in all three games looked dominant. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um, 
So you you now we've got it's it's a long way off. It's still eight months away. It's amazing they do this draw so far ahead, but they do, and so we now know who they're going to be playing. The players said before this, a lot of them said we would like to play the best. We kind of dream about having this game against Brazil or dream about playing against whom. Do you think they really believe that? Or do you think that deep down they say, no, we want to get through. We'll take the soft touch. If we could find an easy round robin group, we'll take it. We want to get to the elimination. Then we're going to face someone great anyway. So do, do you think they really wanted to drop, dive in against a Brazil or someone right off the bat? Or do you think ultimately they'd be happy in a group that realistically they have a good chance? Well, there's there's a lot to be said about youth. Uh, when it comes to experience, youth does not have a lot of it. And when you've played against the top teams in the world and the top players in the world, you don't want to play against them. You really don't. Uh, and I think that it just shows that the confidence that the Canadian team has, that that's their attitude going in, that we can beat anybody. Uh, the reality is probably not. So I think what you need to do is that the World Cup is basically a marathon, not a sprint. So you have to start off slowly, uh, hopefully gain some confidence when you play against teams of equal calibre. Uh, I do think that they will be underrated when playing against teams like Belgium and Croatia. That will work to their advantage. Uh, but keep in mind, although this is playing for your country, this is also an opportunity that you're playing for yourself. This is mm. the world stage. If you want to make a lot of money and you want to go to the best teams in the world, this is the stage where you have to perform. And if you do well, it could be a life-changing experience. John, in, in 1986, the last time they were there, we only have a few seconds, uh, they didn't score a goal, they didn't get a point, um, didn't obviously get a win. Guaranteed that something from that improves this year, that, that the result is better in some way, that this team is so much better than that 1986 team? Well, again, the 1986 team was a very, very good side. I think the coaching got it all wrong. Uh, I think going in there, just trying to keep... Uh, you know, the goals against as low as you possibly can. This team is built for attacking. This team is built for, uh, you know, for entertainment. And they're also built for gaining experience for 2026. I hope that they go forward and entertain and score goals. Yeah, me as well. I think everybody does. We're all looking forward to it. Hey, before we let you go, are you more of a fan of Waka Waka or Haya Haya or La La La? No, I'm a bagpipes guy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's what they haven't had yet for a world cup official song is a bagpipe anthem that's that's what we need i'm with you all right uh john mcgrain really appreciate the time thanks for doing this john yeah don't forget scotland's not good enough to, to be hosting anything right now that's okay we can adopt part of them part of their culture and bring it in when we host in four years all bagpipes all the time that's what we'll do uh john mcgrain thank you for this we are hearing, we're knowing, I mean, not just hearing, we know that COVID regulations are being relaxed or have been relaxed. And people who have been working at home for a year, two years, offices are now reopening. People are beginning to go back to the place where they used to go every single morning at nine o'clock or whatever time they got there and returning to what most people would describe as normal. However, this is apparently causing consternation, stress, anguish, 
mental health issues for a number of people, just the, the, the anxiety, I guess, of getting back to that. Rebecca Smith is the director of group life and disability services with Medivy Blue Cross. She joins us now. Rebecca, thank you for the time today. Thank you, Scott. So is this a thing that people are now that we are being told, hey, it's time to start coming back to the office, get out of the pajama bottoms and put on some clothes. And is this a thing that is causing real anxiety? I think it is. I mean, we've got individuals that are probably really excited about going back to the workplace and seeing coworkers and collaborating there. But we have a whole other group of employees that it is creating anxiety for. Uh, it's been a long time since we've been there. And and adjusting to this new reality again is, is going to take a toll on some individuals. Why would that be? And and the reason I ask is not to dismiss the concept, but I'm assuming that most of the people we're talking about here are not going to the office for the first time. I mean, there's always the anxiety of going to a new job or something, but if you had been in an office before and always worked there, why would going back cause anxiety? I think, you know, returning to, to the office environment, I mean, we're not we're not completely out of a pandemic. There may be individuals that feel there's still a sense of risk with return to the office. We've also been very isolated. And so stopping that isolation now feels uncomfortable. So it it can create anxiety just being out in in the world again. And, you know, two years is a long time. Unquestionably, it's a long time. But also, in some senses, it's not that long. And it's amazing to me that in two years, our psyche could change that much, that we that something like this could cause us that kind of fear or worry or whatever else. And I, I, I again, not dismissing it, it's, it's amazing to me that in that period of time, we could potentially change that much. You know, I mean, it's interesting when you look at mental health. I mean, it's been the number one cause of disability in Canada for quite some time. And we are seeing increases now as a result of the pandemic. So, you know, it's it's been something on on our minds already. And this kind of event just increases um, the prevalence of it. Does this speak in your mind just to the idea that, you know, we always hear people say people don't like change. We don't like change. Is that what this is, that it's change just makes us either antsy or worse? I mean, when I say antsy, again, I I realize that's sort of a glib way of describing what we're talking about, but change, we, we just don't like change. I, I would agree. And, you know, this is a form of change. And I, and I think that, you know, what's going to be really key is how the employers uh, react when these individuals start to come back. Again, you have to be able to define, you know, which of my employees are going to be happy to be here and which of my employees are the ones who are struggling and how do I help them? It's a great question because if you're a boss, if you run a company, should you be doing everything you can? Should you be offering to let people stay at home if they're worried about this? Or should you be saying, no, you did work here before. And I understand that this is going to be causing you some consternation. But you know, the best way to deal with these things is to rip off the bandaid quickly. So I want you to come back in and see how it goes. What is the proper response? I, I think it's it's less about, you know, what the, the response to where someone should be working. I mean, uh, there's going to be employers that have, you know, hybrid environments, full-time remote positions, in-office positions. But I think the most important thing is that for all those employees, that there is a supportive culture. Um, 
the the environment, even those that would stay remote, could still potentially develop mental health issues. So I think creating that supportive culture where your employees can talk to you about their mental health uh, needs and, and any challenges that they're having is absolutely critical, as well as ensuring that your frontline managers are really equipped to have those conversations. Do you, you said a moment ago that mental health was the number one cause of disability. I think I worded that correctly. Tell me if I got that wrong. But um, do you expect those claims to go up now that things are getting back to the office? Are you expecting a surge in more of these? I do anticipate that we are going to see more. Um, I think that this is sort of the trend. And I think, you know, the things that go on in the world around us impact us. Um, And COVID has been particularly um, difficult for a lot of people. And, you know, so again, we look at, you know, when when we're looking at supporting individuals, we want to make sure that as an employer, that we have strategies to help people, that we have tools and resources and services that are available for people to to really play an active role in their own mental health, um, but also to make sure as an employer that those those resources are available to them. I see I want I, as you're talking, I even wonder if this is a necessary thing. And and what I mean by that is there's a lot of people who, as as we say, have been working from home and have been producing plenty and doing a great job. I even wonder, you know, is it necessary to say we need you back in the office now? make it a choice as long as long as the person is doing the work they're supposed to be doing make it a choice and and uh, you know i mean depend on the, depending on the different employers needs um i'm there are those out there that are making it a choice i mean i think that is you know a, a great first step to have that flexibility um and again understanding the needs of the individual and being able to flex to them for some there will be a, a need to have their employees there uh based on the type of work potentially um but again i think that you know for some people going back to the office could be a healthy thing as well for their mental health, mm. even though that may not be their first choice. And you know what, you said we got to run, but you said something a moment ago, and I think you're absolutely right on that too. I think there are people who, you know, we're talking about the people who are stressed out about going back to work. I think there's a lot of people who have been stressed out about being at home and can't wait to get back to the office, quite frankly. So uh, good news, bad news scenario for sure. Rebecca Smith, Director of Group Life and Disability Services with Medivy Blue Cross. Thank you for the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. So much discussion over the last number of months about the urban boundary in this city. Whether we should expand, whether we should not expand, whether we should create more intensification in already built up areas. Well, we know what happened. The city of Hamilton, the council voted a few months ago to not expand the urban boundary, freeze the urban boundary. Well... This is now back on the table because MPP Donna Skelly uh, has brought this up at Queen's Park and suggested that perhaps this should be going to a tribunal to look at whether or not this is a good decision or whether this is a decision in the best interest, I guess, of the population. Uh, She joins us now. Donna, thank you for doing this today. Nice to talk to you. You, um, in Queen's Park, you refer to an anti-housing and anti-growth ideology. Do, Do you believe that's what's behind this more than practical decision-making? No, I think it's actually very political. We have to address what I believe is is an absolute crisis, not only in Hamilton, but right across the province. In fact, probably right across the country. 
The homes in Hamilton now average $1 million, Scott, $1 million. And we have young people, generations that are saying and, and believe they'll never realize the dream of home ownership. And council is refusing to address the reality that we have to build homes to meet the demand. We do not have enough supply. We know, based on the numbers by staff, that we will have about 236,000 more people living in Hamilton by 2050. And if we freeze the urban boundary, according to city staff, if we freeze the urban boundary and do what city council is suggesting, which is build the homes within the current boundary, intensify the the uh, a number of homes per square foot, if you would, uh, if you will, we will be short sixty thousand homes. It's simply not going to work, and that's why we have to take a better, a different approach, and lean on the experts, the staff who have been recommending this for years. This isn't an arbitrary decision. This has been on the books for years. They identified years ago that we need to grow it by this much in order to accommodate the expected growth in our city. All right, but be that as it may, Donna, with those numbers, there was polling done or there was a survey done in the city. Did the people of the city not have their say? They've, the 90% said that they did not want the urban boundary expanded. 90% of the respondents. I don't, I think there were 16,000 people. There's 700,000 people that live in the city of, sorry, 600,000 people that live in the city of Hamilton. And uh, I mean, if, if you want to go and rule by referendum, let's do it. But that's not what we do. We do what we believe is best and we have to build homes. There's no way of getting around this. And the, the problem by saying we're going to do this through intensification is this same city council that is opposed to urban boundary expansion is rejecting uh, one application after another for <laughs> increasing height um, uh, density in, in the projects within the city boundaries, the current boundaries. So, you know, you can't have it both ways, and we have to address this shortage. I've spent many time, you know, many hours on the phone talking to people, asking me why I would support something like this, and they get quite upset. They all live in single detached homes. And they, there, there are answers. Well, don't let people from outside of the city move here, pushing the prices up. Well, you know that, that we can't do that, A and B. Our young people, our children are moving to Brantford and to Grimsby, and they're driving those prices up. Uh, I mean, we have, to, we have to present some concrete solutions to this crisis that we are facing. And simply suggesting that the status quo is enough isn't enough but you it but donna you isn't enough but you've sat around the council table though you were a member of city council if if when you were there if the province had overruled a council decision would you have been okay with that or would you not have been critical of the province well just so we're clear all official plans have to be approved by the province and right now the city has yet to submit its official plan so what I'm suggesting, they've said they're not going to, however, rec- take the recommendations from their own staff. And if they're not listening to their staff, then they've got bigger problems. They should be looking at why they have these, why are they paying this staff if they're not going to listen to 
There's their suggestion, which they've had, as I said, this has been uh, a plan that has been in the works for years. And it was it was that same official or that same boundary was there when I was on city council. But these official plans, municipalities are creatures of the province and all official plans have to be approved by the province. We haven't rejected it yet. We haven't received it yet. I know that the province wants to work with municipalities because we want to resolve this crisis in housing. I want my kids to be able to afford a home. Scott, you, I know where you and I lived in the same area and that was farmland at one point and not too long before we had our homes built. And if we took that, that same uh, approach throughout uh, the past 25 years, 30 years in the city of Hamilton, we probably wouldn't be beyond, um, you know, the mountain in terms of growth. We wouldn't have any new homes in the city at all because at one point it was all farmland and i'm not suggesting that we should be looking at prime agricultural there are other areas in the city i know there's one right by my office building that could be built we could build homes on it tomorrow it's not deemed prime agricultural let's look at the land that we can you can we can utilize tomorrow let's let's get move forward with construction on those particular parcels the province is also working with municipalities to help them, um, you know, pay to hire more inspectors so we can expedite the process. We want to get rid of red tape so when builders come in and they submit their plan, they're, they're looked at immediately as quickly as possible because, of course, time costs money and not one builder is going to eat that cost. They pass it on to the consumer so it drives up the cost of a home. But we still have to address the critical issue, which is we do not have enough homes. We have more uh, demand than there is supply. That will only be addressed if we build more homes and the current plan being um, put forward by the city council will leave us 60,000 homes short. Let me, Donna, we're short on time, but let me just ask you one more thing about this. Uh, City council did vote on this. How much autonomy should a city government have? How How much freedom should a municipal government in your mind have to be able to make decisions like this? I think that this, like every official plan, it has to be approved by the province. We as a province also have an obligation to address critical issues, and one of them is, and it's a crisis, it is housing. I know you're going to be talking about tiny shelters. That's a housing issue. We have to build more homes. We have to build more homes people can afford, not only affordable housing for people who need subsidies, but homes young people with income can afford, homes people can afford, and we will never in the city of Hamilton be able to do that if we don't um, put the election that's coming up in the fall, which is why I think that this is this city council is, 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 uh, has, has decided to do this and put the, the freeze on the urban boundary expansion. I can tell you publicly they're against it, but privately I've spoken with many of them that have said, you know what, we're going to let you guys wear it because we know it's the right thing to do, but it's just too hot. And we'll let the province take the, the hit on this. They know we have to do it. We have to build more homes. And we're, as a province, if that's what we have to do, that's what we have to do. Flamborough Glenbrook MPP Donna Skelly, thanks for the time, as always. Anytime. Tiny houses is what we're talking about. This has been something that has been bandied about in this city for a little while now. In part, maybe in large part because of the encampment issue, but what do we do? Is there a better way to deal with people who don't have a home, who are homeless? or for whatever reason, are out on the street. And tiny houses, tiny shelters, Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters, uh, behind this, uh, they've proposed something, which is to build a bunch of these small, tiny facilities and allow people to live in them. 
Tom Cooper is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. He joins us now. Tom, how are you today? Hey, Scott. Good to hear from you. Listen, thanks for doing this. I know you guys had an event today to sort of show off what something might look like. Um, where does where do things stand with this? I, I mean, it's being able to show that you can do it and being able to get it onto a property somewhere. Where, where are we in that path? Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Uh, that is where we've stalled a little bit. Uh, we've had tremendous community support in terms of getting donations and, and really rallying around the idea of having these tiny cabins built. Um, but we haven't been able to find a appropriate location for, for the tiny cabin community yet. The Hamilton Wentworth District School Board uh, very kindly offered us the use of the Sir John A. McDonald High School property. Um, but unfortunately, there was a massive flood in the building in February. Uh, all the sprinkler systems went off and flooded the building. And it's a, so it looks like uh, the demolition of the building is going to be pushed up significantly. And, and so that no longer became a, a feasible option. So we've been so, looking around, uh, seeing if there might be uh, a, an appropriate location to to house a small community of these tiny cabins. And uh, that's partially what uh, today's call out was, uh, really to ask faith communities, uh, business owners, uh, landowners, and, and, and the city as well to to put their, uh, you know, creative juices to work and, and see if we can find someplace uh, to, to land this, uh, what I think is a pretty important project. So leaving us, maybe I don't, I'm not asking for a very specific place, but what would be the kind of place you would need? Like how big and what, what area does it have to be right in the downtown core? Like, what are you looking for as far as an area where you might be able to do this? Yeah, that's a great question, Scott. And Actually, I would have assumed that being in the downtown core would have been the most appropriate. But over the last month, uh, we've had a team out talking to people who, who are currently experiencing homelessness. And they told us that they'd actually like to be a little bit away from the downtown. Um, there's a variety of reasons for that that I won't get into. But uh, certainly there's, uh, you know, some challenges uh, for people who, who are living downtown and uh you know, they want to uh, see this tiny cabin community maybe a little bit away um, from the downtown area and, uh, and and really use this as an opportunity to, to stabilize their lives and, and to stay secure. Um, so that's uh, that's what we've heard from people who are experiencing homelessness, maybe a 20 minute walk from downtown somewhere. Um, but Tom, so that's, that's stunning. That's stunning. Yeah. And let me jump in because that's stunning because for the as the longest time that I can remember, the debate has always been, it has to be right in the downtown. There can be no other option. And I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about lots of different people on this one. If there yeah. is now an opportunity that it doesn't have to be right there, um, it, that could presumably theoretically solve an awful lot of problems as far as finding a place, as far as you know, the, the rebuilding of the, the entertainment district that there's a big issue with. I mean, that, that opens up a whole bunch of doors. Yeah, I, I think it does, Scott. And it, it surprised me as well. And, and maybe, you know, maybe I was assuming a bit too much that uh, being close to the services was really important. And it is. I think, uh, I think people want to be along the bus line. Uh, they want to have access to, to those community services that might be located in the downtown. Um, but I think they want to be far enough away uh, where maybe some of the uh, bad influences um, that may 
that may come into play in in this type of a community uh, aren't aren't as easily accessible. So that that was really interesting. Uh, that was that is from, from people experiencing homelessness. That is really, I mean, of all the things that that has come along from this, that may be one of the most stunning things I've heard. And, and again, only because it's for so long been that this must be. And, and to follow that up. Do all these tiny homes then have to be in one location? Or if people are now willing to not necessarily be right in the core, does that open other doors to say, well, we could do three or four of them here and three and four of them there, and and which would make it presumably even easier, Tom? Yeah, that that's a possibility, Scott, and and that's something they've done in Halifax with uh, with tiny cabins. Uh, the the Catholic diocese over there has has a, a bunch of uh, small communities, three, four, five cabins set up at, at a bunch of different uh, church congregations. Um, I think for us, we'd probably like to see um, see a grouping of about ten or twenty. Uh, just because we want to ensure that uh, we can we can appropriately support uh, that community, mm. so we're we're planning to have full time staff people on site uh, to provide security and and support for the people who are living there. One thing we found in in doing our research is that having this type of tiny cabin community really does help stabilize people. It it it's sort of a transition between uh, moving out off of the street and between moving off the street and into more permanent types of housing. And, and with these tiny cabin communities, people will have their own key. Uh, they'll have a sense of autonomy in the cabin and, and really be able to, you know, stabilize their lives, feel better, stay warm, stay healthy. And does this have to, would this be the exact same group? Uh, and when I say group, I don't mean like, specific group but that are now in these encampments or are there certain qualifications um as far as your you know drug use or other things that have been long you know criticized as this is part of the problem with the encampments do you have to be in a certain place in your life to qualify for one of these yeah i i think we're going to be relying on the advice of of the advocates and medical professionals who work uh closest with people who are currently experiencing homelessness in terms of uh, the recommendations of who would be most appropriate to to come into a community like this. Uh, we certainly want to look at a harm reduction approach, uh, but we also recognize the realities out there, right? And and people who are currently experiencing homelessness often have a lot of uh, a lot of concerns. Um, yes, drug drug use is part of that. Uh, mental health is is certainly part of that as well. Um, but there's lots of people who who have been economically evicted are experiencing right, homelessness right. for the first time and and they simply have nowhere else to go they don't feel safe in a shelter um and 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 so this could be a good option for them too yeah no it's it, listen tom uh, listen great stuff uh, some of this stuff i like really interesting that uh, i mean it's always interesting when we have you on i don't mean that but you know you hit on some things here that i don't think any of us really expected to hear today and i really appreciate that tom cooper director of the hamilton roundtable for poverty reduction thanks for this thanks scott you're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The Vatican, the Pope, apologized for the church's role, the church's place in what happened at residential schools in Canada. It was something that um, some people may have been expecting. Some seem to be caught off guard a little bit that there was an apology. But where does it go from here? And what does this mean in the long-term. Liam Midzane-Goban is a settler scholar and assistant professor of political science at Brock University. Uh, thank you for the time today. Appreciate you coming on with us. 
Thanks so much, Scott. It's great to be here with you. So I'm listening to what the Pope said, and uh, I don't know if I've seen the full thing. I've seen clips of it. it. It seemed, as I heard it, to be an apology without condition or caveat. Is that what you heard? I think it's still a bit too too early to know, to be honest. Um, I think the way that it has been talked about is as a first step. Um, not by the not the not by Pope Francis, but certainly Indigenous leaders have seen this as a first step, and and those in the delegation also talked about it being a first step. So whether or not there were explicit reservations put on the apology today, I think the next steps and the follow up actions and actually following through on the words that the Pope spoke are really going to be the measure of what we can take from from today's apology. Which would be what? I mean, I know one of the things they said is that they would like him to come and apologize on Canadian soil. And I think he said he'd like to do that, whether that happens. But what else would be in that mix? So to be perfectly honest, the Catholic Church has been one of the most uh, obstinate in actually supporting reconciliation efforts and recognizing its own role in the residential schools uh, system in, in Canada. So that's things like records that the Catholic Church currently holds, that they've refused to hand over, that they have um, taken out of Canada and sent to Rome for safekeeping, and so they wouldn't be uh, subject to Canadian courts. Um, it is things like there is at least one living bishop in France that the church um, continues to provide cover for who has committed sexual assault, uh, or at least is alleged to have committed sexual assaults in Canada as part of the the residential school system. And that's not even taking into question the amount of money that they have claimed not to have uh, and not handed over, uh, despite agreeing to it in the in the residential school settlement. So there are a number of really concrete steps um, that go past apology that really um, move towards actually telling the truth and being honest about that and living up to those consequences. Let's go for a second to what you just mentioned about that priest who was in France. Um, this is something that I always uh, I always struggle with when there's an apology. We've seen our prime minister do it a bunch of times, and it's it's easy to apologize, or pretty easy, or easier to apologize for something that someone else did rather than for your own behavior. We we uh, our prime minister, the pope, us. It's a lot. We tend to be willing to apologize for the behavior that others did. We were much slower when it's our own. Is what you're talking about? Should they be? making sure that anyone who's alive who like is it the pope who should have been making this apology i guess is the way i'm saying it today or should it be the people who were who are still alive who were involved i think it's both so those who are alive obviously have to i think face justice and those who are alive have to do their own atonement and have their own um, process of coming to terms with the, what they've done the Pope's apology is important because he is the head of the church, and it's the church as an organization that is ultimately responsible for a lot of these kinds of actions. And it's ultimately responsible for the role that it as an institution played in the residential school system. And so I think it's meaningful for individuals um, within the church who have committed crimes, uh, or at least allegedly committed crimes. Um, but it's also really relevant for Pope Francis to do this because he's ultimately responsible for the actions of the entire church. We've heard different responses, even on the news here. We've had different voices that have talked about their response to what he had to say today some have been and, and reading about others some have been saying they were moved by this by the words and and feel like it was a legitimate statement and a legitimate um words that were meaningful and others have said yeah it doesn't really change anything it, it 
for those who say it doesn't change anything, why not? Because the, 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 there was such a heavy, heavy push that this needed to come, that this had to be part of things. And I, and I'm, I, I'm going to say, I agree with you at the beginning where you said like, this is a step. I, I don't think this solves everything, but surely this is something rather than nothing. So I th certainly think it's something, um, but I also think we can't tell individuals how to process this themselves. Um, every individual who is impacted and every, frankly, community that has been uh, impacted and, and faced what has been recognized as genocide by this system is going to grieve in their own way, is going to have their own series of uh, traumas and their own process for getting through that. And so for some people, this might be really meaningful and this might either close a chapter or allow them to move on or allow for further healing. For some people, that's not going to be the case. Uh, for some people, like I know I've heard today, um, that's not going to bring their family members back. That's not going to give them the time that they lost with them back. And that's going to take other kinds of concrete action. And you know what? That is going to, that may never ultimately, um, they may never ultimately be satisfied with something that the church does, but but that's okay too. Uh, and, and really, I think the measure of the church's action words here are going to be their actions. Uh, if you talk to many lawyers, they will tell you if you're if you're accused of doing something, never apologize for it because that admits guilt, and then you're potentially liable. Do you expect the Pope, having done this now and saying "I'm sorry" for what is gone wrong, do you expect that this will lead to a series of lawsuits against the Church? I don't know. It's certainly possible. Um, those have been filed in the past, and um, the residential school settlement is is likely to. Um, at least minimize what kind of damages might be able to be um, sought against the church. Um, I think rather than looking at it necessarily from a legal angle, though, and, and I understand why that is obviously important, um, but I think if we look at it on a moral level, this is something that absolutely had to happen. Um, it's something that regardless of what the legal case for or against um, apologizing might be, uh, if you are serious about wanting to do some sort of reconciliation and if you are serious about moving forward and engaging in that healing, like this is just a step you could not have missed. This is absolutely mm -hmm. the first thing that they had to do. And so I, I think the legal question is, to be perfectly frank, almost a side question. It's It's something that may may come under consideration for some, but I think that moral weight um, really is 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 what factored into the decision today. Liam Midzane Goban uh, from Brock University. Really appreciate the time. Thank you for this. No problem. Thanks, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. There are times that you know, we get a little concerned or we get a little doubtful or a little skeptical about polls because we say, you know, how close are they? What are they really telling us? Well, I think that's a fair comment to make at times and certainly with some polls, especially when you see a number of polls on the same topic and numbers are all over the map. However, we are two and a bit months away from a provincial election and three polling groups have asked Ontario tax, uh, taxpayers, yes, Ontario voters, their thoughts on where they're leaning when it comes to the next provincial election. And what is amazing is that all three, all three, Angus Reid, Ipsos, and Leger, all essentially have arrived at the same numbers. And that is, depending on which one you're talking about, between 37 and 39% of decided Ontario voters, almost four out of 10, 
say they will be casting a ballot for Doug Ford when if the election was to come along today or when the election comes along. Give or take 25% for the Liberals, 24% for the New Democrats. And the amazing thing, as I say, all these three polls all have essentially the exact same numbers. Does that mean they are for sure the way the voters are going to go? No. Does it mean, though, that probably there is something here and there is some credibility to them? I would suggest yes. Andrew Enns is Executive Vice P at Leger. Uh, he joins us now. Thank you for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Before I get into these numbers, let me just ask you one thing about being a pollster. When you do a poll and you see that others have done the polls, do you like it when you see that your numbers come up similar to theirs for similar questions, or do you like it when you stand out? No, look, you, 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 a, you feel confident in your numbers and you do the best you can to get the right numbers. I think you're always sort of paying a bit of attention to, uh, to what else is out there in the, uh, you know, in the media and in the environment in terms of, uh, in terms of the, uh, in terms of polling, especially when it comes to the, you know, we're talking about provincial voting. So the, the questions are pretty standard. All, all the companies will ask it in a, in a fairly consistent way. So, you like to think that I mean that that's the science behind what we do. That, that right, we're, we right. are going to come to pretty pretty clear uh, pretty pretty clear positions. Let's get into this. Uh, I think there may be some people listening right now who are surprised by these numbers, and the reason I would say that is because uh, there's always a lot of noise. And whether it's social media or whether it's talk radio or whether it's whatever, the governing party, whoever it is, is often the one that's being screamed at. And we can come to the conclusion that that means that they are not necessarily popular or they are going to get slaughtered in the next election or whatever else. This this is the opposite of that. This is saying that despite all the noise, there's a lot of people who think Doug Ford is doing okay. Yeah, and I agree with you that uh, that you do, uh, you know, governments do attract lots of attention. They're, they're government, they're doing lots of things. And typically, you know, when a government does things, inevitably, there's, there's a certain percentage of the population's happy about it, but there tend to be the quiet ones and go along with their, their day to day and the ones that feel that they don't like what's, they make lots of noise. I think that, uh, you know, what you see here is, is, and, and to your point, though, you know, sure, the, the the PCs have a have a good lead, but when you start to combine all the people who would make noise about the government, you can see that it's a sizable portion of the uh, population that are that are not of uh, you know not on the same page with the government. But the reality is, they have to be happen to be split across a few different parties, and that uh, you know that uh, that plays into the uh, the government's favor at this particular stage. Well, why? And we know that that's the case, 6 and 10. Uh, so if 4 and 10 are going for Doug Ford, uh, 6 and 10 are not. And yet it seems as though Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca, neither of them have been really able to capitalize on that. Why have they not been able to capitalize themselves and why have they not been able to separate from each other? Because they're basically tied. Well, for sure. So, so you know, one, one, one element of the answer to that is... is um, and I've talk, talked about this before in, in some other media is that, you know, the pandemic, while it, it was, it was hard for, for governments because this pandemic was, was something very new and, and, it, and it changed and it forced some really tough decisions. What got lost a little bit in the pandemic was that it was actually hard on opposition parties. Um, you know, it was a one issue, it was a one issue thing. And, and quite frankly, in Ontario, um, 
the government was pretty aggressive in communications. They sucked up a lot of oxygen. Sometimes it wasn't always going well for the government, but they were out there talking about things they were doing. And ultimately that meant that the opposition parties didn't get a lot of coverage. So I think you've got that factor that's, uh, that's, that's playing into uh, the current state of affairs. And so people are sort of coming out of the pandemic and realizing we've got these other opposition folks. I think the other challenge, and, and this goes to your second point about why can't um, Stephen Del, Del Duca or Andrea Horvath sort of surface as the as kind of an heir apparent. I think you've got kind of two dynamics at play here. You've got Andrea Horvath, who who I, I I'm pretty sure this is at least her third election. Um, she's not a new leader to the uh, to the voter, and I think uh, you know for some voters it may be she's sounding like kind of a bit of the same old and we've had a couple of uh we've had a couple of uh, campaigns with her and i'm not sure there's anything new here so uh you know moving on and then you've got steven del duca who's at the other end of the spectrum he's the new guy and not a his his overall awareness isn't that high he's only you know in the 60s but not like the other two leaders and he's still i think getting his feet under him and i think people are still not sure okay he's new but does he have it? And I think mm-hmm. they're still, you know, they're making that, that, that assessment. And, uh, you know, to be honest, I think Stephen Del Duco probably wants to get into this campaign because, uh, you know, he needs to, to get more face time with voters exactly. and, and, yeah. and use, use the time to really reassure him that he does have what it takes. And there's another irony, and we got to jump in. There's another irony in what we were just talking about, because you talked about, you know, the, the pandemic has given Doug Ford all this airtime, and it's been pandemic, pandemic, pandemic. And the other parties have been screaming about pandemic, and now your poll shows, you know what, people, I mean, the pandemic is still there, but it's inflation and cost of living that is really driving their concerns. So you run the risk, I guess, if you're one of the opposition parties of being behind the curve, unless you can somehow get in front of this. If you let the conservatives become the one and you're just chasing them, well, you're going to be chasing the main topic in this election. Well, for sure. You know, and, and look, uh, to be honest, uh, you know, and I've, I watched the last election. I followed Doug Ford a little bit. I think he's, I think he's a comfort. I think he'll be comfortable going into this election dealing with cost of living and and those those affordability issues and those issues at the kitchen table because Doug Ford has a has a populist streak he'll roll up his sleeves he'll he'll look for some some new policies and some new uh, some new ideas to try to save uh, a, you know save a few save families a few dollars he 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 will get in and, and he will he will i think look forward to that fight and feel confident that if if that's what the election comes down to um he'd be okay with that. Um, I think the other parties, they'll have their ideas, but I also think that they, they will have thought and probably hoped that they could also maybe go after the government on their pandemic record as well and stresses on healthcare, long-term care. Those might still be opportunities, but voters may be looking more forward than backward on this mm. one. And, and I, I would say that's probably favors you know, the, the government and premier Ford. Andrew ends from Leger. I really appreciate the time today. Thank you for the time. Thanks for doing this. Well, yeah. Thank you. Appreciate doing it anytime. You're listening to the Hamilton today podcast from 900 CHML. One of the, wow, this is a, this is a crazy story. Um, 
people are now using Jeff uh, Mark Zuckerberg guy from Facebook has created this metaverse that he's trying to get. It's an online world. There are other examples of this from other people who have tried to do this. Anyway, we're now hearing complaints from women who are going on there. They create their avatar and they go on and they experience something in this non-real but sort of real computer online world. It's not their physical body, obviously, but they're saying, you know, they've been groped by other avatars and this is not right. What are you going to do about this? And I know some people listening to this are going to say, come on, that's completely ludicrous. You're on a computer game, essentially. Then others are going to say, no, that's completely sexual assault or sexual harassment. Is there anything in the law that could handle something like this, though? Is there anything, any reason to believe that this could actually be something that could get you charged or sued or found in the wrong? Let me bring in Jeff Manishin. Is he a criminal lawyer, former Crown attorney? Always love having him on. Jeff, thanks for the time today. Certainly, Scott. This is uh, this is not something I ever thought that we would be uh, having to talk about, about could a fake world lead to real-world responses when you first heard about this, what was your initial reaction? I saw a story on television, and I thought about it, and I thought, gee, it might be tempting if one was creating an avatar, you know, to respond. You have your avatar respond with appropriate measures of force. You know, you load your avatar up with an Uzi, you know, and your avatar finishes <laughs> off their avatar, <laughs> or something That's like that. A- in other words, you respond in kind. I'm not into the the matter world, the gaming world, and so forth. But if, if, the, if it's called, they can do things that might make you feel uncomfortable, then fine, you do what you have to do to respond. Now, on the other hand, the story that I saw seemed to indicate that there are people out there that are using avatars in really sexually inappropriate ways to sexually harass the other person's avatar, which really was you know, more upsetting than just you know, somebody bothering and annoying you. The the defense, though, if anything was ever to be done, if you were ever to be having someone lay charges or even sue you if they could figure out who the offending avatar was, would the defense not simply be that that's pixels, that's not me, I did not physically touch you, my hands were not upon you, there was no... It's not real. That, that, that I think, is going to be the argument. It's not real. Can you Could you be in trouble for something that's not real? Sure, and, and in fact, Scott... You've jumped ahead to say if you were charged, how would you defend it? Back up four big steps, and who's to say somebody would get charged at all? Fair enough. And charged for what? And I'm going to park for the moment the civil realm. I don't do civil litigation, so that's that's sort of outside of my area of expertise. Could you theoretically sue somebody for something? And that's assuming you could find out who did it. In the story I saw on TV, the individual is being harassed, reported it to whoever was responsible for coordinating the game site, and they basically disqualified that person, that other person, and moved them out. And within a few minutes, the individual was complaining, got hit on again by somebody else. Here's the issue from a criminal law standpoint. We could take a look at what are potential charges. Well, you can't get to an assault because there's no intentional application of force to the other person or even a threat of the application of force because it's all fake. It's all what about the application of evidence. emotional force? Well, no, we, assault isn't, I'm going to make you upset. Okay, assault is, I intentionally apply force to you by an act, by a gesture, and even if I don't apply force in the sense of making contact, if, I, if you're in a position where you may reasonably be able to anticipate that force may be applied to you, we can still have an assault. I swing at you from close distance and you duck. I've assaulted you, or potentially assaulted you, but not in the avatar world. 
There's no apprehension of contact because there's no contact. It's just fake. So we'll. So what if assault. we take it? What if we take it then to the next step? So we take assault out of the matter, but we say harassment. Could it be harassment? Oh, Scott, you're so good. I always say that to you because, in fact, I looked at criminal harassment as an alternative. Okay, and and the the challenge with respect to it. Certainly, harassing conduct, I looked at the definitions as our Court of Appeal has described it, if the individual felt as a result of the prohibited act, the person felt tormented, troubled, worried continually or chronically, plagued, bedeviled, or badgered, that can certainly qualify, Scott, as harassment, and conduct could potentially do that. But there are only limited definitions of potential conduct that fits. Now, one of them is engaged in threatening conduct directed at the other person or any member of the family. Well, it's not really threatening conduct directed at another person. It's the other person's avatar. And an yeah. element of the offense yeah. of criminal harassment also involves that the individual reasonably fears for his or her safety. You aren't reasonably fearing for your safety if all that's being affected is your avatar. So criminal the harassment, I looked at it, I don't think it works. The closest I could think to this, because again, it's not something where your hands are on or where there's a threat necessarily. Do we have... It, if someone is walking, if a woman is walking down the street and some guy whistles at her like a, a, a fox whistle, is that, or a wolf whistle, what's the, whatever the wolf phrase whistle. is That's that we use. Wolf um, if you do phrase, that, Scott, we're showing our age. I know. But if someone does that, if someone whistles at a woman as she's walking down the street in a way that makes her uncomfortable, is that considered harassment or is that just considered free expression and so be it? Well, I, I'm a freedom of expression. I, I suppose it would, but look differently does it qualify? Well, remember the issue of reasonable fear for one's safety. I don't think you could characterize it as threatening conduct. It's unpleasant, but I don't think you get there. I mean, we know, of course, too, people often kind of use interchangeably sexual assault and sexual harassment. There isn't actually a criminal offense of sexual harassment. It's used in the context of labor and employment. It's used in the context of civil cases. Our criminal harassment that we have involves that issue of fearing for your safety. So I don't think that one works. But I did have an idea for another one, Scott. Go ahead. How about this one? If we said the criminal offense of mischief is willfully interfering with somebody else's lawful use or enjoyment of property. If we mm. could show that the individual responsible for the sexually harassing avatar was interfering with our complainant's enjoyment of the video game system. Could we say there, and you know, his or her, or her, his or her computer. Could we formulate a scenario where we could say that individual has interfered unlo effectively, unlawfully with the lawful use and enjoyment of the property? I guess, Maybe. although the first thing that comes to mind when you say that is, okay, but does that not open the door then to say, okay, I'm now in an adventure role-playing game and one of the people on my team shoots me in the game, not in real life, in the game and ends my game. Could you then say that, well, you know, shooting someone and groping someone, um, it, neither one is happening in real life, but they're both offensive things. Could you not then say, I could get you charged for that? I mean, it, it opens up a bunch of doors to a bunch of strange places. I wondered about that one too, Scott, but I would say this, and I think you and I may have talked about hockey violence in the past. You know, If within the game, characters may well shoot and kill one another and that happens, I don't think you could ever show that there's interference with the lawful use and enjoyment of the property because the conduct that takes place is within the realm of what happens within the game. Now, if we stop there for a sec, and this is again outside of my expertise, what are the, quote, rules of the game with respect to the metaverse? 
with respect to what avatars can and can't do. Yeah. If you could potentially control your avatar in a way where he or she could behave sexually inappropriately, if it's, if it's possible el- electronically, does that constitute something that's out of keeping with the game? Okay. And what's so fascinating... I'm, I'm thinking if it's got from the standpoint of something that's really outside entirely of the, the exercise of the avatar role-playing that you'd have to yeah. try and rely upon. And as I, I say, what's so... Work. It's just, I'm trying to be creative and say, is that something? Well, it's tricky because, and we got to run, but what, what's so interesting about this, in real life, if somebody was to corner you and you they were attempting to do something sexually inappropriate, you can't go anywhere. You're cornered. In, in the computer world, theoretically, you could turn off your computer or you could... I assume I don't. I don't play in the metaverse, but you, there, the, it's not quite the same, which makes it a very, very complicated, very difficult thing to try and figure out how laws might be applied to this. Anyway, it is a it's a fascinating story that I guarantee you we have not had the last discussion about because this is um, th- th- this is just getting started. This whole metaverse and everything else. This is guaranteed going to be a thing going forward. Uh, Jeff, always appreciate the time. Jeff Manishin, a criminal defense attorney in town here. Thank you for this. My pleasure, Scott, as always. Today, we were talking with Flamborough Glanbrook MPP Donna Skelly about her position that maybe the province should reconsider, a tribunal from the province should reconsider Hamilton City Council's vote to cap the urban boundary, that limiting the ability to add more space for more homes is causing a problem with housing in this city. And let's see where it goes from there. Well, I know one person, among others, um, who was not in favor of this. She made that clear on social media. I want to bring her in to talk about it as equal time for this very important local issue. Her name is Sandy Shaw. She's the NDP MPP for Hamilton West Ancaster Dundas. Sandy, thanks for doing this as always. Thanks, Scott. Uh, Been a while. It has been a while, and I must apologize. You don't even maybe know this, but before you came on, I completely mangled the name of your writing. So I, I tried to say it right this time because I know it's HWAD, which I still think is just, they got to rearrange the letters or something. It doesn't sound so nice. But Hamilton West Ancaster Dundas, which is a lovely Good. writing. Uh, thanks for doing Listen, this, Listen, the, the speaker in the House of the Legislature bungles it too, so you are in good company. They got to make these things shorter, but anyway, let's let's move along here. You clearly uh, disagree with Donna Skelly's position and thoughts on the expansion of the urban boundary. Why? Well, yeah, and let's be clear: it's not just Donna Skelly; it's the it's the entire Ford government whose p- position that uh, I disagree with. And you know, uh, unfortunately, Donna's comments were, were um, you know, uh, they were unfortunate because they think calling people anti-housing, anti-growth. That's really insulting. It's insulting to thoughtful planners, like people put time and energy into this, all the experts, people like the Ontario Federation of Agriculture have weighed into this. I mean, it's clearly insulting to city councils um, across the province and, and, who, and councillors like Donna uh, MPP Scali, who were also duly elected to make decisions. And finally, I just have to say it's insulting to the thousands of Hamiltonians, like including people in MPP Scali's writing, who clearly have said there's a better way to grow um, and there's a better way to help people find homes than they can afford, not simply this uh, PC uh, 1950s vision of growth. You mentioned the poll, and the poll is a huge part of this story for sure because I really believe that it had a big impact on council's vote on this, and it was that 90% of Hamiltonians voted against expanding the urban boundary. 
That said, though, Sandy, the, the, the poll was of 18,000 people in a city of 600,000, and it was driven, the people who were, who were pushing it hard were those who clearly were against this. Should Can we really say that the citizens of Hamilton were against this? I, well, what I have to say is this is a remarkable community mobilization. And so when have you ever seen that many people feel so strongly about something that they were engaged with their municipal level of government? But what I want to say that this is a movement, I'm going to say there's a movement made in Hamilton because it's going across the province. Halton voted to freeze their urban boundaries. Uh, they're going to save something like 5,000 acres of farmland. We're seeing the same movement in Peel, York, Durham, Simcoe, and Aurelia. So this is moving across the province. So I think why we're seeing such tough talk from uh, MPP Skelly and from this government is because they got a problem on their hands. They have a problem that people across the province are pushing back against this vision and saying, we're not just going to sit back and let you pave over farmland, uh, develop, you know, build big highways to big houses that not everybody can afford. There's a better way to do this. So it's not just about Hamilton City Council. It's about councils all across the province of Ontario. What about those councils? How much, how much autonomy should municipal councils have when it comes to making decisions that the province, regardless of who's in power at the time, you could be in government next time, uh, how, how much autonomy should they have to be making decisions that the government in power may not agree with? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's, a, it, it's autonomy, but, but it's also about respect, and it's also about respecting um, you know, pe- the people of Ontario. So the people of Ontario elect their city council, councillors and they give they entrust them to make decisions on their behalf and what you would like to see is a provincial government respect those decisions you know why would a provincial government not be listening to uh city councillors who know their communities best why wouldn't this why would this government sit you know in, in ford's corner office or sit down there in the legislature and make decisions at the stroke of a pen when they don't know what it's like to live in these communities so it's, it's it, you know so it is about um if you want to have good governance, if you want people to be represented uh, um, fairly, you shouldn't just be up there, you know, they shouldn't have a provincial government that is just heavy-handedly making decisions uh, for other people's lives and not listening clearly to people that have a difference of opinion. I mean, that that's the whole point here. You, you know, I just have to say, like, the, the people that, that, you know, you have to say, why is this Ford government so... Um, pushing this through. I mean, why about why is he building highways? Why is this all about uh, developing homes on, on land that land speculators own? I mean, it's just a matter of record. I'm not just saying this, but it's a matter of record that all the MZOs, which are ministerial zoning orders that, that um, issued, were issued by this government to rezone uh, like agricultural and rural land for development, they are donors. PC connected donors and developers. It's not just me saying it, it's a matter of public record. So the question is, who benefits from this? Who really does benefit? And the reason that people are so concerned about this and passionate about this is because not every person can afford a really expensive home um, in, you know, in sort of, you know, rural or suburban areas. Some people can, absolutely. That's an option for some people. But most young people I know can't afford that. And also, they, they want a different choice. They would like to have, live in commu- complete communities. They would like to perhaps be able to walk, you know, to, to, uh, to stores and coffee shops. They don't necessarily want the older vision of what housing is like. And so there's, there's, there needs to be more than one option. 
you know, we need to be looking at all these different options, not just bulldozing, no pun intended, on mm-hmm. farmland to build these houses and not understand also that the housing crisis that they're using to say, we have a housing crisis. Yes, we do. But this is not a cover for you to, do, to, to move forward development that simply benefits connected insiders and land speculators. You need to understand that this crisis has been going on since the minute that they took office, has been made worse by this government by doing nothing to have rent controls, by not doing anything to make sure that people don't get rent evicted during COVID. They've done nothing. They've done nothing. This is the only thing that they've chosen to act on. Which let's might Sandy. Answer. Let me jump in for let me jump in for one second. Yeah. And ask because I think you bring up. I mean, look, we all know about the housing problem. We have a, we have a shortage of housing, and that's something that whoever is going to figure out a, a solution to this is going to have to figure it out. We're told, and I know you've heard this number many many times. We're told that by twenty fifty, that Hamilton is going to have something like two hundred and thirty thousand more people living here. Somehow, we have to find places for them to live. And so the, the, the challenge becomes then, if we're not going to expand out, we're going to have to expand up or become more dense. So here's the question. We have seen that we've had a suggestion that maybe we should be removing zoning restrictions so you could build multiplexes in a neighborhood or um, taller buildings or bigger apartments mm. or whatever else. Except oftentimes when we see suggestions like this, we then have people saying, I love the idea, just you can't do it in my neighborhood because you're going to ruin the character of my neighborhood or you're going to block the sunshine or it's going to block the view. Does this necessarily then mean if we're not going to expand out that the city has got to make some hard decisions and say, sorry, neighbors, but these are things that you're just going to have to live with? Well, two things there. One is that the, the province, their own task force said that they should look at some of these zoning changes to allow gentle density. And so, they, and they neglected to do that. So this government's just moving forward on the one solution, which is build houses on farmland. Literally, that's the only solution that they've proposed. The second part about this is the, the, the projection numbers. Like, th- this government has changed, you know, the growth projections out to 30 years. So they increased the length of the projection numbers. The Auditor General found that these numbers were, you know, she didn't use the language, but they were politically driven. There was no sound evidence for these, these numbers that this government is trotting out. And finally, we have never in the city of Hamilton, you know, met the growth projections that we've been living with for the last, you know, 20, 30 years. So to use, you know, growth projections as, a, an, again, another heavy-handed tool to say, look, we're, we have, you know, we, we need to build all these houses and we're going to be short if we just don't do this one thing. It's just unwise planning. It's unwise. We need a suite of of approaches to this. I'm not saying that we shouldn't build, you know, suburban uh, neighborhoods, but I'm saying that can't be the only solution. And we need to do it in a thoughtful way. And we need to do it in a way that (laughs) listens to people, listens to people that, um, you know, have been trying their best to make their voices heard, not just in Hamilton, but right across the province. I mean, I think that's why they're uh, running scared, if I could say that, that it's not just Hamilton that's pushing back. It's all across the province. That is Sandy Shaw. She is the MPP for Hamilton West, Ancaster, Dundas. Uh, You've heard both now on the show. You've heard Donna Skelly's point of view. You've heard Sandy Shaw's point of view. We wanted to make sure that both were out there so uh, people can hear them and decide which one they think is right. Uh, Sandy, listen, we love having you on the show. Thanks for taking the time today and explaining this. Yeah, it's good, uh, good to talk to you as always. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We were talking at the very top of the show today about April Fool's Day because today is April 1st and it's April Fool's. And one guy who came up with an idea that got uh, that got some attention and we were this is what got us started on this. There is an event, there is, well, it's an exhibition that's been going on in Kitchener at the museum and they decided to put out a contest, start a contest today saying if you win the contest, you can come and stay in the replica of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards' original flat. It's dingy, gross, empty beer bottle, dirty dishes, clothes everywhere, disgusting carpet apartment. And David Marscale, CEO of the museum, I got to believe you probably got a few applicants before they realized it was a joke. Did you? <laughs> um, we actually did. And um, uh, one of my favorites is we, we actually had a radio uh, person online say, you got me once a couple of years ago. We got her with uh, what we were talking about, a new marijuana exhibit. And it was sponsored by Doritos. <laughs> and in the press release, I was stuttering and on and on and on. So yeah, we've had some fun with it today. We've had a lot of people uh, commenting on it and so on. It, it's uh, it's been great. I thought, and you and I have talked about this before. So for people who are into the stones, uh, this is a terrific exhibit. But I thought it was supposed to have been done by now. Yeah, it hasn't been a smooth um, run with COVID. Uh, we were we were to open, and we were bumped by a month, and then we opened for a month, and then closed for a month, and now we're back open, and then working with the Rolling Stones management and so on, we've built some credibility, so they've allowed us to extend it. So we've got about another three weeks uh, uh, through Easter Monday, which is April the 18th. Um, and it's it's a fantastic show. It, it really is terrific. And the Edith Grove that you mentioned, the replica of where they lived, it is disgusting and filthy. And there's a great conversation on the rollingstones.com of, of Keith and, and um, Mick talking about how horrendous it was. Was was there a really was there truly a story behind the carpet? Well, again, it's actually if you if you if you go to rollingstones.com and up in the top left uh, exhibitions, ours will come up and down in there it's the two of them talking. And in it Mick recalls all sorts of things and Keith just keeps going, it was horrendous. The carpet was horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> and it's pretty visual here. I mean, it's it's pretty wild if you uh if your if your listeners get a chance to come and see it. Step on it with bare feet and go get a tetanus shot. We've, uh, I think we may have all lived in an apartment like that at one time or another in our life, but uh, we didn't all turn out like Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and make that kind of money. Um, so Mick was okay with you keeping all of his stuff for an extra few weeks then? Yeah, which was really, really wonderful in allowing us to extend. Um, and we did it at the front end. We actually helped uh, in, uh, in Groninger in, in Europe. They They were in the same situation. So we ended up opening a month late to allow them to have uh, a little bit more run uh, at their end. Um, so, yeah, and we've got all of their guitars and the costumes and um, the Warhols, uh, the, the great Warhols that he did around Mick Jagger. And um, it, it's people are coming from afar. We've got over 42% of people are from outside the region. And uh, it's the Rolling Stones. I mean, it's an incredible brand, and it's, it's a real snapshot of the last 60 years of pop culture. Despite the challenges with COVID and everything else, I mean, what has the response been? You've been getting people, but when they come, what's the response been? The, the um, surveys and so on that we do has been very, very high in terms of, of uh, satisfaction. And um, again, I kind of top line some of the most popular ones. The costumes and what Mick and, and the band wear on stage are, I, I mean, I was very impressed. I had no idea that he was wearing, you know, Prada and all these 
McQueen, all these amazing uh, designers. And, and then to look at the guitars and, and how Keith has unique ones from Ronnie and uh, the harmonicas that, um, that uh, Mick Jagger uses and so on. So uh, people have just been getting into it. And, uh, we, you know, we've had some great film series and dialogues uh, alongside of it to sort of dive into certain areas. And people have been responding and really loving it. Has anybody, as they've come through and looked at the costumes, especially from Mick Jagger, said, I had no idea he was so small? Yeah, 100%. I, I, that was one of the first things I noticed, how, how little his waist is. And, um, yeah, it's, it's quite remarkable. And it, it, I didn't realize, I've learned a lot myself, excuse me, as a Rolling Stone fan, like how much they've influenced, obviously, music, but, um, you know, film and, and, and fashion. And... Um, you know, Kiss was kind of at the other end of that years later, but the Stones and Bowie and so on, they were there, they were, they were leading, leading people. And, you know, you recall the Beatles with their, their same suits and ties and the Stones, there were some images of that early, early on, but then they broke with that and really, really led the fashion change in, in music, which is, uh, which is a, a whole conversation on its own. But to see the costumes here is incredible. Uh, you mentioned Kiss, and I, like, there's no particular reason I mentioned Kiss except for the fact that you brought them up. I wonder if an event like this, if an exhibition like this is a jumping off point for you or for other museums that look at something like this, because I'm sure you've had people from other museums come through as well to see about this. You know, it's great to go to a museum and to see dinosaur bones or to see ancient artifacts and stuff, but I think I almost wonder if pop culture is a new thing that we're going to see more and more and more of in exhibitions in museums around the world? I believe it, it's certainly been working for us. I mean, we've had, we've worked with Yoko Ono a couple of times. Um, I mean, Titanic may not be pop culture, but we, we had a successful run with that. Um, we've worked with Bob Marley, the Grammy museum in, um, in Los Angeles and <clears throat> people, people respond to it for sure. Um, you know, a Beatles exhibition for sure would work. Um, and, and, and some of the niche ones like a kiss, um, would work. The uniqueness with the Rolling Stones though, is they're still touring. I mean, they've just mm. announced they're, they're opening in Germany in May and going through London for their 60th year. And that, that's, uh, that really makes, sets them apart from the others in terms of their relevancy. They're still happening. Yeah, I, uh, I've seen them a couple times, but I, my buddy and I went to that SARS concert tw- 19 years ago, and not to be, you know, we thought they were kind of getting up there then, <laughs> and, and 20 years later, they're still going, so good for them that they can do it. I mean, that's, that's fantastic, but it is kind of remarkable they're still at it. Absolutely. ACDC did very well at that, that concert, um, but the Stones rebounded somehow, and, and they really have come back. Um, I saw them at Burroughs Creek in the summer of 19, I believe it was just north of Barrie. And I was fortunate enough to see them in Austin, Texas this past November. And Mick's voice and the band, you know, they were tight and his voice was great. And um, I, I wish I could go and see them in England um, for the 60th uh, anniversary, but at least I can hear the music every day walking in and, uh, and, and sort of dance my way through the galleries when, mm. I, when I, you know, take a walk uh, in the afternoon. Well, Mick has to keep going because he's got kids to pay for. He's got, you know, young kids coming up, school, university and stuff. He has to, he has to save for. So, you know, there's absolutely, a bunch of them. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, uh, David, if you're, if you, sorry, if you I was just going to say, I think the same thing you were. If somebody wants to see this in the time they have left while the exhibition is open, how do they get to see it? Well, the museum.ca will lead you to everything. 
Um, and Scott, if you want to, to give away three pairs of tickets, six tickets in total, grab some names. Uh, your producer's got me my email and we'll work it out so you can, uh, you can give those away. And, um, yeah, we hope to see, see all of your listeners here before it ends on Monday, uh, April 18th. David Marskell from the museum. Really appreciate that. Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much. Take care. Take care. That is uh, David Marskell, who, as it turns out, it's been a long, long time, was my boss years and years and years ago when I was a university student working in public relations for one summer. Good boss. Good guy. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.